so before we uh, sold our house in Mapleton, actually it's still there, but um, while we were living there, there were a number of trees in the backyard. Uh, and there are some of them that are pretty easy to distinguish, right? You can tell a white pine pretty easily. Um, the apple trees are the ones that have apples that grow. But there was one tree back there that we had a hard time figuring out what it was. Uh, we were there for something like five years, um, and it was, it, it was kind of a scraggly-looking, sickly tree. Uh, and so we cared for it and pruned it and fertilized it and, you know, did all the things you're supposed to do. But we, could, we really never had a good handle on what it was. Had some ideas, but we weren't quite 100% sure until the very last fall that we were there. One single fruit that grew on that tree. One little tiny plum. It was a plum tree, which was not on our short list. Uh, <laughs> but it was a plum tree. One very small plum that grew there. We, had, we could not determine what sort of tree that was until, until it bore fruit. Now, we have been following Christ, the story of Jesus, as he brings the good news of his gospel to the world. How he came to find lost, hungry, broken sinners and bring them into his kingdom. This very unique and this very unusual sort of kingdom. And the news of this kingdom was very good news indeed. Because in it, in it, we see how God is this holy, just creator of all of the world. And he created mankind. And he created us to depend on him as our creator for light and for life and for love. But we rebelled against him in that. We thought that we could find what we needed elsewhere. We thought that we could find something better elsewhere. So while we were supposed to be looking to God for these things, for light and for life and for love, I stole those three words, um, just so you know. It's not my idea. Light and life and love. When we were supposed to be looking to God for those things, we turned away, looking for something better. And in doing so, we found only darkness and death and disconnection. And so in our rebellion against him, our rejection of him, that was sin. We sinned against him, and that sin resulted in a breaking of that relationship that we had with him, a breaking of the relationship that we, have, uh, that we had with each other and with our world. And that sin begat more sin and more sin and more sin. And so there we were, lost in a broken world of darkness and death. But it was in the middle of this world of darkness, of disconnection and of death, that the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to die on the cross to pay the due penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven and our rebellion against our Father restored, to, restored to light and to life and to love. And he did this willingly, knowing the cost, knowing the pain and the suffering. But he did not stay 
He was raised to life again and now sits at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the day when the victory that he won over sin and death will be completed. And on that day, all the effects of our rebellion, all of the darkness and the disconnection and the death that we have lived with will be eradicated. And those who have loved the light more than the darkness will live forever in the kingdom of light as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, basking in the radiance of his love as we live with him forever. And so the question, the question that Jesus is arriving at with this sermon that we've been studying for the past few weeks is, which kingdom are you going to love and serve and pursue? Are you going to love and serve the kingdom of light and life and love? Or the kingdom of darkness and death and disconnection? Because whichever kingdom it is that you are loving and pursuing is the kingdom that you will get. So Jesus gives this sermon teaching us what it is that his kingdom, that kingdom of light and life and love, will look like. And we've been reading this entire passage um, each week just to keep things in their proper perspective and their proper context. So we're going to begin in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? 
A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks." Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So specifically, this morning, I want to look at what it is that Jesus said about fruit. In verse 43, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. We will know, we will know our hearts by our fruit. So if that's the case... What is it that he's talking about here with, with our hearts? The, any time that we read in the pages of Scripture that the author is talking about our hearts, they're talking about the deepest essence of who we are, that central core of our person that, um, that underlies our personality, our beliefs, our worldview. All of those things are based on our heart. And all of our thoughts and beliefs and emotions and actions, they all flow out of our heart. It's the deepest essence, the central core of who we are as individuals. So if that is what our hearts are, what are our hearts like? There's a, uh, there's a principle in studying the Bible called the, uh, the principle of first mention. Or if you, want to, if you want to start to understand what something is, you go back to the first time that the Bible talks about it. And the first time that the Bible talks about somebody's heart or, or people's hearts is back around the story of Noah and the flood um, in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Uh, and so in Genesis 6, when God is looking out on the world, he sees sin. He sees wickedness. He sees evil. It says in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil 
continually. So God looks out on the hearts of mankind, and this is what he sees. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it's because of that evil, it's because of that wickedness, that the judgment of the flood occurs. But then the flood happens. Noah and his family, Noah, a righteous man, and his family are saved through that. And after they exit the ark, um, Noah goes through and and makes a a number of different sacrifices. Uh, And it says in Genesis 8.21 that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So all of the wickedness outside, right? All of the wickedness from the world had been washed away. But the true problem was not in the mass of humanity. The true problem was not in the people out there. But the problem was in the human heart. As long as the human heart existed in that condition, so would sin. So would evil. And so we see this borne out in in the pages of the story as as it unfolds. And it gets to the point where the prophet Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And it's so deceitful, it says in Proverbs 21, that we ourselves can be deceived by our own hearts. It says in Proverbs 21 that every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So we might think that we're doing good. We might think that we're doing the right things, but we can't even be sure of that because our hearts are deceitful. They're lying to us. But it's God who judges. He weighs the heart that motivates our thoughts, our actions, and our attitudes. And so we can know, Jesus teaches us here in in the passage for today, that we can know the condition of our hearts by the fruit that we bear. We will know what sort of heart we have by the results, the outcomes, the things that follow as a natural consequence. Because the natural consequence of a healthy apple tree healthy apples. The natural consequence of a healthy raspberry patch, there'll be healthy raspberries, right? And no fruit or unhealthy fruit is a sign of an unhealthy, in some way, tree or bush. The type of fruit shows what type of tree it is. And he's drawing this distinction based on the fruit that a person bears. And it's kind of parallel to what we see in the very first uh, couple of paragraphs of this, of this sermon that he gives. Right? You see the blessing and the woe. And you see the good fruit and the bad fruit. The good person with a good heart yields good fruit. That is the natural consequence. That is the natural outcome, the overflow of a good heart. But an evil person with an evil heart yields evil fruit. That's the natural consequence of it. And we will be able to understand, we will be able to understand something of the orientation of our hearts by looking at the fruit that we bear in our lives. And Paul makes a, uh, a similar distinction between, um, between those who are walking by the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit, 
those who are directed by it, and those who are walking according to the flesh. Uh, so we see this in Galatians 5. Uh, and, it's help, and so this is, this is helpful for us then to understand what it is that God defines as good fruit. What it is that, um, and what it is that God defines as bad fruit. So this is in uh, Galatians 5. We'll start, where did I have a start? Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Again, you have this, this distinction between these two, um, these two categories. And they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. So this is the fruit. The fruit of a heart that is evil. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, so this is the good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we have the bad fruit, the evil fruit, the fruit of the flesh. And when, when you read through this list of, of characteristics, what we see is a heart that is turned in on itself, a heart that is focused on itself. Right? So in immorality, impurity, sensuality, right? I'm pursuing what makes me feel good above all else and over everything else. Idolatry, I appoint the thing that is most important in the world. Sorcery, I must bend the world to my will. Now in, in the time that Paul was writing this, that looked different than it does today, but I think that the same principle applies. I must bend all of the world around me to my will. Enmity. If you don't submit to my will, if you don't submit to me, I will not love you. Anger. How dare you not do what I want you to do? How dare you not submit to my will? Dissensions and divisions. It's my way or the highway. Right? These are all fruit of a heart that holds itself up as the most important thing in the, in the universe. And to the extent that we see this fruit, we see a heart that worships itself, that holds itself up as God, and that is in rebellion against the true God. But then on the other hand, the good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit that we see here, reveals a heart that is focused on and, and directed towards God. So when we see love, we see a heart that understands God's love for us 
And because that heart has been loved by God, it loves the people around it. Joy and peace. We have everything that we could ever possibly need or want in Christ. And so I can be at peace with the world around me because of that. Patience. God is the one at work in this world. I am not in control. I'm on his timetable. I will wait for him. We will have patience as we come to understand that. Faithfulness. God is faithful to me, and so I am faithful to the people around me. Self-control. The steadfast love of God is all that I need, and that has never changed and will never change. And so I don't need to lose control to get what I want. The fruit of the flesh reveals a heart that is oriented away from God and towards itself. But the fruit of the Spirit reveals a heart that is oriented towards God. A heart that is trusting in his steadfast love for his people, rather than trusting in itself. And so this fruit, this fruit of the Spirit, comes about as a result of the Father sending the Holy Spirit as our comforter, as our guide, to shape us and to mold us and to make us more like Christ. Because this fruit that's listed here, Christ bore perfectly. His life bore this fruit perfectly in every single way. And as we become more like him, as we are shaped and molded after uh, in his image, then we will bear this fruit as well. But this shaping, this molding of our hearts is part of the work of the Spirit in our lives. That's part of what the Holy Spirit is doing in us and through us. And so we see this fruit. This gives us the opportunity to assess the fruit of our lives. Is my life bearing fruit? Or rather, what type of fruit is my life bearing? Is my life bearing the fruit of the flesh? Or is my life bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Now, it's never going to be 100% in this life. It's never going to be 100% one way or the other. Very rarely are you ever going to find somebody who is just completely given over to the fruit of the flesh. But at the same time, we will never perfectly embody in this life the fruit of the Spirit. But we can look at our lives and see general patterns. Generally speaking, my life is characterized by something. Is it characterized by patience? Or is it characterized by anger? Is it characterized by love and gentleness? Or is it characterized by dissensions and divisions? Everywhere I go, am I healing or am I tearing down? What is the general direction of our lives? And then, more importantly, what are the things that I am growing in? How am I growing? Am I more joyful and peaceful than I was a year ago? Or are strife and jealousy more prevalent in my life now than they were then? We show this fruit, we evidence this fruit in the thousands of decisions that we make every single day. Right? This is not a once a day thing. 
This is in every single day, every single moment. We are making choices and we are making decisions that are motivated by something. Are those choices motivated by love or by rivalry? Do we desire joy or do we want to divide and conquer others? Which is our emphasis? Which is our desire? Which are we choosing in those thousands of decisions? What, which fruit is it that is coming out of us? And when we look at this list, and we look at our lives honestly, we may not be entirely comfortable with what it is that we find. We may not like what we see. We may see more of the flesh than of the spirit, or more of the flesh than we want to. And if our fruit reveals that our heart is oriented in the wrong way, that our heart is oriented towards itself rather than towards God, what can we do? What if we are bearing bad fruit? The kind of easy, worldly answer, just try harder, just do better, just be more loving, just be more joyful. But it's not about our external compliance with any set of, of rules. Following Jesus is not about trying harder or doing better. Behavior modification is not the answer here. And in fact, it ends up backfiring. It produces the opposite of what we intend it to produce. Because if I, do, if I do not see joy in my life, and I say, I'm just going to produce more joy, then what's going to happen when we're not more joyful? We're going to get angry. Why am I not more joyful? I want to be more joyful. And so our quest to produce joy artificially in our lives produces anger. It produces the fruit of the flesh. If I say, I'm going to pursue peace in my life, I'm just going to be tranquil and calm and serene. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are people in your lives that will not allow you to be at peace. And so if you're going to pursue peace, you've got to cut those people out. Because, man, they're cutting in on your peace. But in pursuing peace, what have you done? You've made an enemy out of that person. You've created divisions and dissensions. You cannot artificially manufacture, you cannot will yourself, you cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. These things are not a to-do list. They are not an object, a goal for you to achieve. But they're a side effect. They're a natural consequence. The fruit of the flesh is a heart that is wrapped up in itself. The fruit of the spirit is a heart that is wrapped up in God. And so the core issue then is that orientation of our hearts. And until that is changed, no amount of behavior modification will ever be enough. Until our hearts are changed, 
we will not see these things change. We need a new heart. We need a new heart. You remember the story of David and Bathsheba, right? David sees Bathsheba. He lusts after her. They have a probably non-consensual relationship around that. And David tries to lie and trick his way out of the consequences of that and ends up having Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed. And when David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, he sees the fruit that his life has borne. He looks at the fruit of his life and says, this is not what I want. This is not what I am going for. I don't want this. And he writes in that time of of distress or in response to that distress, Psalm 51, which begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He doesn't have to look very far to find his sin. Amen. We don't have to look very far to find our sin. And he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's looking at his fruit, and he has arrived at the conclusion that the tree of my life is a bad tree. My heart is rotten to the core. And so he pleads with God in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David's solution to his problem is to ask God to give him a clean heart. He is asking God to do for him what he cannot do for himself. He is asking God to take his twisted, self-centered, evil, sinful heart and give him a clean heart. A heart that is centered on God rather than centered on itself. So David's confrontation with Nathan forced him into an examination of the fruit of his life. And he determined that that fruit was not in line with what God was requiring of him. But his solution was not to clean himself up. His solution was not to buckle down and try harder. But his solution was to ask God to fix the core issue, to give him a new heart. And that, friends, that is the right answer. And so if we find that our self-examination, looking at the fruit, evaluating the fruit of our own lives, is not yielding a satisfactory result, God is the one who is in the business of giving us new hearts, giving us new desires, giving us new ways of seeing and understanding the world around us. And so the very foundation of our being, the very core of who we are, which was consumed with the rot of sin, he takes that out and gives us a new heart, 
heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone. Now, the, the $3 theological word for this is regeneration. So generation is, is the creation of something. The regeneration is the recreation of something. Um, Jesus talks about it in, in John 3 in terms of being born again. When Nicodemus comes to him and Nicodemus says, I want to be a part of your kingdom. I want to be a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you must be born again. See, the heart that you were born with is not enough and can never be enough. But you must undergo a transformation, Nicodemus, that is so profound, that is so deep, that it's like being born again. In Romans 6, Paul talks about it in terms of of dying and being made alive again. Um, When he writes, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a fundamental change at the very core of who we are, our hearts. This is something that God does in us, for us, and through us. Now, the the way that that change is enacted and the promise of that change are the very same thing. We are given the Holy Spirit to make that change happen. And we are given the Holy Spirit as a promise, as a down payment, as a seal of what is to come. So Paul writes in Ephesians 1, In him, that is, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit living in us, working in us, is the guarantee, it's the proof, it's the promise of the work that God is doing in us. The Holy Spirit is working in us to bring about the changes that our new heart dictates. A changed heart has to result in changed fruit. Not all at once, although I wish it was, but over time, But what we see in what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 is that the fruit of the Spirit is not the whole thing. What we see in our lives is not the whole thing, but rather it's just the first taste. It's just the first taste. It's just the first fruits of what our lives in this kingdom of heaven that Christ is preaching will look like. If you remember when uh, Moses sent the spies into the promised land, they went and they scouted out and they came back and they came back bearing what? Some grapes, some figs. Those were the first fruits, the first little taste 
of what the life of the nation of Israel was going to be like in the promised land. It took them years to realize that. It took them years to fully grasp hold of everything that God had given them. Forty years they wandered in the desert, and hundreds of years thereafter they fought the Canaanites for control of the land. But those first fruits that the spies brought back were no less than a promise. This is what is waiting for you in that promised land. This is what you have to look forward to. It's a far cry from the fruit that you will see. But it's just a small taste of it. And so we see this fruit, the fruit of the Spirit here, not as a currency that we use to earn our way in, but as the proof that God is working in us and that he has called us to himself. And as the smallest taste of what it will look like in a world that has been completely set free from the bondage of sin. So what is that? Can you imagine what that looks like? To to live eternally with with people whose lives our love unreservedly, our joy, our peace, our patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I want that. I want to live in that place. I want these things to be the characteristics of my life. And I look at this and this is worth giving up anything else that I might be able to give. Anything that I might be able to get with my enmity, with my jealousy, with my fits of anger. I can get a lot with that. But it's nothing in comparison to the surpassing riches that we see here listed in the fruit of the Spirit. So we must, we must, friends, assess the fruit in our lives. Are we bearing good fruit? Or are we bearing bad fruit? Remembering that this fruit is not things that we do. These are attitudes that we have. We approach the world with love. We approach the world with joy, with peace. They are orientations of the heart. The measure of our fruit good or bad, depends on the orientation and the condition of our hearts. And this is not something that we can change on our own. This is the work of God in our lives. And he desires all of our hearts to be oriented towards him. He is faithful to answer all who call upon his name and ask for a new heart. And so if your fruit is not good, cry out to him. Ask him to change your heart. Call out to him. Ask him to forgive you and heal you, and he will. Additionally, also, as with any plan, it's God who gives the growth. One man plants, another man waters. It's God who gives the growth. It is God who gives this new heart. But he has also given us the garden of our hearts to work and to tend and to cultivate, to plant and to water. And if we have understood Christ and the kingdom that he is calling us to, we will desire 
these fruits. We will want to see these fruits more and more in our lives. We cannot create them, but he has given us the privilege of of being able to cultivate them, to work alongside, to plant, to water. God has provided us with the means to participate in this work. And we would be missing that opportunity. We would be neglecting that privilege if we neglected to make use of them. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his people. We cannot control the spirit, but we can control how we respond to the promptings of the spirit. We can become sensitive to the spirit or we can become hard to the spirit. We can control the influence that we allow the word and we allow his people to have in our lives. Are you daily submitting yourself to the word of God? Because in his word, we find the single greatest story that could ever be told. The story that tells us of a God who is the infinite expression of all of these things. The infinite expression of love and of joy and of peace. And it tells us how he dealt with a wayward, stubborn, sinful, rebellious people. Not with wrath and anger like we deserve, but with infinite patience. And as we understand that story, and as we make that story a part of our daily lives, we will find those things growing in our hearts as well. Works through his word, he works through his spirit, he works through his people. Have you submitted yourself to a trusted body of believers? Because not only are we able to assess the fruit of our own lives, but we are also able to assess the fruit of the lives of those around us. As we are living in the sort of community that God has called us to live in, we have the privilege of, as our uh, church uh, covenant says, to exercise mutual watch care, to watch over one another, to counsel, to admonish or reprove as duty may require. Because we have an obligation to our brothers and sisters to help them to grow good fruit. We have an obligation to encourage and to fertilize the fruit of the Spirit, pruning out the fruit of the flesh. And as we give that, we also have the opportunity, the privilege of receiving that. Because very often... Just as we can't see ourselves grow, we have a hard time seeing the fruit sometimes that our own lives are bearing. So we need to be walking alongside of one another because that gives the people around us the opportunity to see the fruit that our lives are bearing and to encourage that good fruit and to discourage and prune that bad fruit. We can assess the fruit in the lives of those around us. And we also need to be doing that to guard and protect our own hearts. Um, In the parallel passage in in Matthew, in Matthew 7.20, Jesus is talking about false prophets. And then he talks about the good fruit and the bad fruit. And at the end, he says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So we can recognize people by the fruits that they bear. That's not to say, don't get me wrong, not to cut people out, not to cut people off, but to guard against 
they are bad fruit from taking root in our lives. Because somebody who is consistently bearing bad fruit and in whom we don't see the fruit of the Spirit should not be people that, that we are going to for counsel, that we are seeking um, insight from. We need to be surrounding ourselves and producing and calling out in others that good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. So Jesus says we will know a tree by the fruit that it bears. What is the fruit that your life is bearing? Is your life characterized by the fruit of the flesh or of the fruit of the Spirit? Would your co-workers answer the same way? Would your spouse or your children answer the same way? Do you and the people around you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? If you don't, the solution is not to try harder. The solution is not to do more. There is no 12-step program. There are no five easy tricks to growing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. They are a gift from God and can only be a gift from God. But in order for us to receive this gift, we have to abandon. We have to leave behind. We have to turn away from our selfish, self-centered hearts and lives. Because you cannot have two hearts. You cannot have a heart that beats for God and a heart that beats for yourself. Cry out to him, friends, in repentance and faith. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Give me a new heart. And if we ask him this, he will give generously a heart that bears good fruit, new fruit, a heart that is no longer wrapped up in its worship of itself, but is wholly devoted to the worship of God our Father. Let's pray together. Father, this is what we want. We long to see good fruit in our lives. We long to have good hearts. So, Father, if we have... Father, if we have never realized the condition of our own hearts. Father, I ask that you would give us new hearts, hearts that follow hard after you, that our lives would bear good fruit. Father, if we've grown discouraged, if we've grown complacent, Father, I ask that you would give us a new confidence, a new desire to see good fruit in our lives and that you would be surrounding us with your people and immersing us in your word so that we would be able to see the fruit that our lives are bearing, the good fruit that it is bearing and see the bad fruit with a willingness to nurture and to encourage that good fruit, to prune 
that bad fruit. And Father, we know that none of these things are possible for ourselves. But God, we know that they are gifts to us from God that have been won by the blood of Christ on the cross. So our hope and our trust today is not in what we can accomplish, not in what we can change in ourselves, not in how we can improve ourselves. But Father, our trust is in Christ and in Christ alone. And we ask that that faith would be shown by the fruit of our lives in every single aspect. And Father, we look forward. We long for, we live with great anticipation for the day when the first fruits of your spirit in our lives are fully realized and we see and understand and know and experience the fullness of what it means to be your son, your daughter. We pray these things all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.